Take that, Mr. Railroad Man. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was the first governor to be born in Texas. He fought for the people of his beloved home state against the corporate giants of his time, a true rags-to-riches story. And without him, the history of Texas could have been filled with tales of fraud and malfeasance in the railroad industry of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas sausage? Uh, my favorite is the smoked uh, ring sausage. It's a coarse ground sausage from originally Kreitz Market. Uh, and they share the same recipe as Smitty's across town, uh, also in Lockhart. Uh, and they share it also with the Lockhart Smokehouse chain up here in Dallas, which uh, Christ Market is co-owners of. So you can get their famous coarse ground sausage hmm. in in Central Texas barbecue country as well as DFW area. It's delicious. Well, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> you're super wrong. And you're so wrong that you don't even know that you're wrong, Sean. It's Pollux. Pollux in Falls City, Texas. I'm going to win here. You're going to lose. And this is just the end of our sausage game. Because if you haven't had it, you don't know. And if you have had it, you've already tuned out because you know that I'm right. It is a fine handmade sausage using only the best ingredients or the freshest seasoning. Uh, it's good American Polish sausage. It's made right in Fall City, Texas. It's very hard to find because you have to be in Fall City, Texas. Although, on a positive note, a couple years ago... They did start selling it at a few regional HEBs, so you didn't have to drive all the way to Fall City to get the greatest sausage ever made. But you this whole thing's moot. Yes, <laughs> and I think they may have online on their, uh, well, an HEB in South Texas in San Antonio. I was going to say, in the age of the internet, I would be surprised if uh, such a popular sausage were not available online. Uh, well, there's a where to buy, but you can't buy it online. If you live in Bandera, Beeville, Brilverde, Casterville, Corpus Christi, Catula, Goliad, there's a whole <laughs> list of stores that are carrying it. It's actually quite a big list. You can even get it in a Weimar, and though it doesn't say exactly where, I'm guessing it must be at an HEB. So maybe get your brother to go pick you up. No, no, they have a uh, they have a Lowe's grocery store in Weimar, <laughs> <laughs> which is not Lowe's, which is not Lowe's hardware store, but a yeah. Lowe's grocery store. Well. I'm obviously biased, but my favorite Texas sausage is going to be the homemade deer sausage that uh, my dad and uh, his brothers and uh, that side of the family get together to make every year. Um, is this going to be another Uncle Buddy story? No, no. But uh, every February, they uh, take all that deer meat that they've accumulated, all the, the trimmings and the stuff that doesn't uh, go into the nice backstrap cuts and uh, grind it up with a little bit of pork fat, stuff it in some casings, and uh, everybody has homemade sausage. Good stuff. Sounds delicious. Bring me some. <laughs> Georgia-born Joseph Hogg moved with his life Lucanda first to Alabama to study law in 1818, and then to Texas in 1839 to establish a new practice. He was elected to the Texas Congress in 1843, where he supported annexation to the United States, and to the Texas Senate in 1846. On March 24, 1851, Lucanda gave birth to their son James Stephen Hogg in Cherokee County near Rusk. 
He went to McKnight School and had private tutoring until the beginning of the Civil War. Hogg's father, Joseph, was chosen as a delegate to the Texas State Convention in 1860, where he cast his vote for secession. He organized and captained the 3rd Texas Cavalry, then was appointed to the rank of colonel by the governor. Joseph Hogg soon became a general in the Confederate Army of the West. Then he contracted dysentery, and he died at the Siege of Corinth in 1862. That was not uncommon for the Civil War. Lucanda died just a year later, and young Jim Hogg and two of his brothers were left with two older sisters to run the family plantation. Over the next decade or so, the Hogg estate was sold off in pieces to pay for taxes and to buy necessities like food, clothes, and books that the brothers needed for their studies so they could learn to support themselves. In 1866, Hogg went to Tuscaloosa, Alabama to attend school. He didn't stay long. He came home that same year and began uh, work as a printer's devil, which is an archaic name for a printer's apprentice that was uh, tasked with things like mixing tubs of ink and fetching metal type at the Rusk Chronicle newspaper. He worked his way up to being a typesetter, and that helped him improve his spelling and vocabulary. He also found inspiration in the writing of his older brother. Thomas E. Hogg, who was studying to be a lawyer, had served in the Confederate Army with his father and wrote two poems and a novel about his experiences. In 1867, Jim Hogg walked from East Texas to Cleburne and took a job with the Cleburne Chronicle. Not long after he got there, the building which housed the Chronicle burned down and he returned home to East Texas. While there, he continued to study law, worked as a farmhand, and apparently assisted the sheriff of Quitman enough to get the attention of a gang of outlaws. They lured Hogg across the county line and shot him in the back. He recovered and returned to his newspaper work in Tyler, and then ran his own publications, the Longview News and the Quitman News. In 1873, Hogg began his career as Justice of the Peace in Quitman. He served until 1875 and earned his law license while in office. So you, don't ha- you didn't have to be a lawyer to be a judge in Texas. He married Sarah Ann Stinson in 1874, and the couple had three sons and a daughter over the next 13 years. His daughter, Ima, was named after the heroine of the poem The Fate of Marvin, which was written by Hogg's older brother, Thomas. Now, contrary to legend, she did not have a sister named Yura. No, she did not. In 1876, Hogg received his first and only defeat in his political career, when he ran for a seat in the Texas legislature against John S. Griffith. He began his electoral winning streak, however, in 1878, when he won the post of county attorney for Wood County. Hogg subsequently served as Texas' 7th district attorney from 1880 to 1884. While there, he gained a reputation as the most aggressive and successful district attorney of... Okay, I'm going to say that differently because that sounds weird. Um, Hogg subsequently served as attorney for Texas 7th District from 1880 to 1884. While there, he gained a reputation as the most aggressive and successful district attorney in the state. Big Jim, as he was known by this time, was largely responsible for convincing black citizens to vote for Democratic candidates rather than Republicans in the national election of 1884, making Smith County a Democrat-leaning county. He was encouraged to run for the United States Congress, but instead chose to practice law in Tyler, where he partnered first with John M. Duncan, and then later, Henry Marsh. On the advice of his friends, Hogg ran for the Texas State Attorney General in 1886 on a railroad regulation platform. I'm sorry. 
on a railroad regulation reform platform. Because as we all know, Texas is riddled with fraud and malfeasance in public railroads. His father's political connections from years before made it easy for him to get the Democratic Party's support. The state already had the power to regulate the transportation industry, but those laws were either unenforced or inadequate. Using, quote, various legal maneuvers, Hogg forced out-of-state corporations to establish operating offices in the state. Hogg broke up the Texas Traffic Association, which was an organization formed by the railroads to pool traffic, fix rates, and control competing rail lines. That sounds like a trust. In 1888, he sued the rail companies for trying to form a monopoly and other charges and won. Hogg beat the rail baron Jay Gould, thus creating a name for himself in Texas politics. Part of his victory included regaining control of the East Line and Red River Railroad. Hogg also forced the rail lines to restore headquarters, shops, and depots. Hogg didn't just go after the railroads, though. He also reigned in the so-called wildcat insurance companies, forcing many to leave the state and others to actually operate within the law. And with his guidance, Texas became the second state to pass a workable antitrust law. He even went before the United States Supreme Court to defend the Texas drummer tax law, which charged an annual tax on traveling workers. He lost in the end, but he tried. And got it all the way to the Supreme Court. That's a big deal. To further defend the people against corporations, Hogg encouraged new legislation to protect the public domain that was set aside for the school and institutional funds, and he pursued lawsuits that returned one and a half million acres of land to the state. Recognizing that his small office, or even the state legislature, wasn't up to the task of guarding the public interest against the corporate railroad barons, Hogg urged the the establishment of the Railroad Commission. He ran for governor on that platform in 1890, and he won with a massive swell of public support. He was the 20th governor of the state of Texas, but he was actually the first to be born within its borders. On April 3, 1891, the legislature took the final step, and they passed a bill to create the Texas Railroad Commission with an overwhelming majority. Hogg appointed the first three members of the commission, placing U.S. Senator and former Confederate Postmaster General John H. Reagan as its first chairman. The Texas Railroad Commission is the oldest regulatory agency in the state and arguably still the most powerful. Hogg's re-election campaign for a second term in 1892 focused on five principles. Uphold the state constitution, support the Railroad Commission, stop railroads from issuing devalued stocks, regulate the issuance of county and municipal bonds, and regulate alien land ownership. It didn't take long for Hogg's opponent for the Democratic nomination, George Clark, to realize that Hogg would easily win. During the convention, Clark and his supporters instead went to another location and formed a new party, the Jeffersonian Democrats, and they nominated Clark as their candidate. The remaining delegates at the Democratic convention chose Hogg as their candidate to no one's surprise. The Republicans ended up endorsing Clark and the Populist Party nominated Thomas Lewis Nugent. Hogg won a second term as governor, but it was with a plurality of the votes. This was the first time in state history that the Democratic candidate did not win with a clear majority. Hogg endorsed three constitutional amendments during his second term. Voters defeated the proposals to charter state banks and provide pensions for indigent Confederate veterans, but they approved the amendment to publicly elect railroad commissioners. 
Hogg further strengthened the Railroad Commission by convincing the legislature to pass a law allowing it to fix rates based on fair valuation and stop other practices railroad companies had used to manipulate stocks. This set the commission up to fight the power of the railroads when the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the commission in Reagan v. Farmers Loan and Trust. That's a pretty big case, too. Yep. Because it establishes that the states can regulate commerce within their their state lines. So it's a huge deal. Take that, Mr. Railroad Man. (laughs) Under Hogg's leadership, the legislature then passed a law requiring communities that issued bonds to also have a plan to actually collect enough taxes to pay the interest on those bonds. I guess it was kind of loosey-goosey before that. He fulfilled his final campaign promise and passed the Hogg Law, the Perpetuities and Corporation Land Law. This law required private corporations to sell land they held for speculative purposes within 15 years. Though he got it through the legislature, the law had numerous loopholes and did not have the effect that Hogg wanted. In 1894, Texas filed a lawsuit against the one and only John D. Rockefeller Standard Oil Company and its Texas subsidiary. Hogg and his attorney general argued that they were engaged in several tactics prohibited by the state's 1889 Antitrust Act. It resulted in a number of indictments, even one for Rockefeller himself. When Hogg requested Rockefeller be extradited so that he could be prosecuted, the governor of New York refused because Rockefeller had not fled Texas. Rockefeller himself was not tried, but other employees were found guilty in court. One further item that Hogg advocated for, but did not get passed until after he left office, was an anti-lynching law. He was out of office for two years before the law was enacted in 1897. On the other hand, while Hogg was in office, Texas passed one of the very first Jim Crow laws in the nation, so his work for black citizens of Texas was mixed at best. Hogg's contributions to the state while governor were not purely legislative either. He also traveled to New York, Boston, and Philadelphia to explain to investors the advantages of the state. He was a champion for both the University of Texas and Texas A&M. He was also fascinated by the history of Texas. He secured financial support for a government office to preserve and maintain the state archives. Those archives are what our friend James Harkins works at today. So he has Jim Hogg to thank for. the GLO, yep. Yeah, the General Land Office. Their archives. Well, Hogg's last year as governor was 1895. His wife had died the same year, and he invited his older sister to move in with him in the governor's mansion. She once again took up the task of raising children who had lost their mother. Now, he could have easily run for the U.S. Senate, but instead he chose private industry. He actually wasn't a wealthy man when he left office, and he had a lot of debt. Through his connections, he became involved in land and oil deals, that combined with his law office allowed him to amass a sizable fortune. He was always interested in the public welfare. He donated many gifts to the universities of Texas, to Houston, the city of Austin, and the state as a whole, but he also taught his children to have the same practices. Hogg didn't give up on public life when he gave up public office. He spoke on behalf of William Jennings Bryan and Tammany Hall in 1896 and 1900. He supported the Panama Canal because of his interest in oil and the profit he could make on a shipping route between Texas and South America and Asia. Hogg continued to fight against corporations even as he made his fortune. In a speech on April 19, 1900, he said, Let us have Texas, the empire state governed by the people, not Texas, the truck patch ruled by corporate lobbyists. 
The crowd at that speech had been purposefully packed against him, but he persisted until they listened. Among other things, he argued that corporate funds should be prohibited from use in politics and lobbies in Austin. Though it was a hard-fought night, by the end, Hogg came out on top, and the crowd supported him. These three principles, get rid of corporate funding in politics, end the free pass system in the railroads, and ensure that insolvent corporations could not do business in Texas, were always close to his heart. In 1901, he addressed the legislature, and in 1903 rented the Hancock Opera House in Austin to argue for these principles in front of the public. In 1904, well before the labor movement in America, he predicted how important this would become. Hogg was injured in a railroad accident while on a business trip in January 1905. Now that's ironic. Although he lived for over a year, he never fully recovered from the accident. Still, he gave a public address on April 5th at a banquet in honor of Teddy Roosevelt in Dallas. He was set to speak during the state fair, but was too ill to do so. His daughter, Ima, had a phonograph recording made of his speech, and she played it in his stead. This speech summarized his view of politics and the public welfare. He called for the permanent establishment of term limits, prohibition of nepotism, tax equality, suppression of lobbying, preventing corporate control of Texas, and open records to, quote, disclose, disclose every official act to the end that everyone shall know that in Texas, public office is the center of public conscience, and that no graft, no crime, no public wrong shall ever stain or corrupt our state. Hogg died in his sleep on March 3rd, 1906, at the Houston home of his law partner, Frank Jones. Hogg was buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Austin, and per his request, a pecan tree was planted at his grave rather than a headstone. He wanted the seeds from the tree to be distributed throughout the state to make Texas a land of trees. This request brought more attention to pecan trees, and in 1919, the Texas legislature made it the state tree. More than 100 years after his death, Hogg remains a controversial figure due to his mixed record on race relations during his term as governor. In August of 2017, his statue, along with three Confederate monuments, were removed from the University of Texas at Austin campus. Due to objections that his statue had nothing to do with the Confederacy, the decision was made to reinstall Hogg's statue on another part of the campus in the future. Well, at least we have the pecan trees to remember him by. Big Jim Hogg. Big yeah, Jim I, Hogg. I mean, I had, we had talked about him briefly before, I think, um, but uh, I didn't I didn't realize until uh, going through this again that he had so many um, I guess what we would I guess what we would call progressive views mm-hmm. on um, the role the role of corporations in government. <laughs> yeah, pol- politically like, it's, progressive. It's, it's, yeah, it's, politically it's like things that were yeah politically progressive. It's things that we're still arguing about today about the role of. Uh, corporate contributions to campaigns and lobbying and um, things like that. It, it's, you know, it's a, a little bit mind-boggling that, that that's those same things were argued about in essentially the same way. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he was in favor of, you know, equal tax and he was in favor of, uh, he was even in favor of labor unions, uh, which was, that was very early in the, the whole, uh, unionization uh, time and and definitely the conservatives of the country were definitely opposed to unions. So, you know, he was he he was politically quite pr- 
progressive in many, many things. It's interesting, you know, he's a Democrat, uh, but as we all know, you know, Democrat in the 1890s in Texas was very different than a Democrat in the 2010s, uh, you know, in, in anywhere. And uh, yet, you know, he, he was probably, he seemed to be very socially conservative, obviously, but he was politically very progressive. So it, it's very interesting, you know, not to get too far into politics, but like you said, today, uh, there's, there's a completely different perspective in uh, uh, many of the political parties towards business, business friendly and being, being, you know, open to business in, in Texas. And this was a very different time when, you know, this was a person who felt that Texas was too open to business and there was not enough protection for the people of the state. And he really stepped up to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's the two things that he was instrumental in. One was, um, I guess the, uh, the antitrust law was, did yeah. he actually help? Yeah. yeah he so, you know, he helped establish that and prosecute that. And then the Railroad Commission, which was intended to, uh, just like I said, regulate the uh, business, initially the business of railroads. It became to be much more than that because it came to be uh, regulate uh, land use in general and that sort of thing. Well, um, one thing one thing that we kind of glossed over that I thought was interesting was the first commissioner that he Appointed, uh, was it John Reagan? Reagan? John Reagan. 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 Yeah. Reagan. Um, he was actually the had worked in the U.S. Senate to establish the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887, which mm-hmm. sort of did the same thing at a national level. Um, was intended to uh, stop the monopolistic practices of railroads. So um, he, he definitely brought in some some uh, heavy firepower to to get that going. Well, it's funny. Um one of my cousins actually works at the Railroad Commission, which mostly today focuses on uh, a lot of pipeline management because yeah. the actual business of railroads, as far as railroads go, is handled by uh, is it a transportation group that handles it. Who yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. One of those those quirks of Texas law where um, the Railroad Commission actually has. A lot less to do with railroads than it does other things. What's in the name, right? <laughs> I think that they're working. They're actually working on trying to change that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting in the weeds on that, but. Well, uh, listen. He, you know, is one of those people that we learn about his name, learn about what he named his daughter, and that's about it. That, that's what you hear in Texas, and and maybe some fun fact of he was the first Texas-born governor. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a nice little factoid. But I, I love the it, idea, especially that he went the, after the fact these, that it. Well, I just love the idea that he went after these big. You know, he didn't just swing it, take small swings. He took some big swings at some very powerful people in America at the time. Yeah, I mean, J.D. Rockefeller was about as big as it got. And, yeah, and Jay Gould, yeah, Jay Gould yeah. was the richest man in yeah, the world. You know, at the time. He, he tried to tried to bring them both down, or at least to, you know, call them to account for the things that he felt uh, they had violated legally. Um, it it is a good thing to examine, you know, that the part about how he was he championed an anti lynching law, which was good. But he also didn't oppose um, the first Jim Crow era laws that were um, 
you know, passed in the state. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that there is that contrast there. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, some of it is con- is contextual, you know, that, you know, it's not to excuse it, but it is a different time um, when it was acceptable to be, a, feel the attitudes of white supremacy of, being you know supreme and and you know that the black citizens were inferior however you know you could you could be a racist and still be opposed to lynching because a lot of the lynching laws were more about public order and in keeping control of the of the public of preventing you know vigilante justice in general that was often turned on african-americans but you know it it at the same time, you know, it is positive that they they did enact those lynching laws. They weren't particularly effective, and they had to be enforced, and they weren't often enforced. So, um, but yeah, the the Jim Crow law that was those were things, and it was not something that was unique to Texas. So, you know, again, not to excuse, but those Jim Crow laws went into effect pretty much everywhere in the United States, not just in the South. So, yep. you know, it was just a terrible time in this country uh, with yep. attitudes and things. So. And, you know, it, it is um, nice to see that even um, in the late 1800s, um, a man could still make his fortune in life, make his way, but with the combined practices of uh, running a newspaper and being a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> the time-honored Texas tradition. He wasn't a shopkeeper as well, though. That's, no. that, that had progressed by that point. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting story. It is, it is, you know, as we said in, in, as we said in the introduction, it is, his, his story is a bit of a rags to riches story in the sense that he was um, orphaned at a young age and um, they had to, you know, sell off all of their land to, um, you know, make their way in life. And then he, in the end, he had, you know, earned his own fortune and made his own mark in the world and then he established a legacy you know as we said he taught his children to be um as giving and caring for the people as he was and we'll at some point perhaps discuss uh, what that legacy ended up being that wraps things up for today you can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com we love hearing from you so like and share us on facebook Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts on historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big thank you to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and also on Instagram at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work online at blackguardpress.com. Now you love this show, so get out there and help us out. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it-Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.